Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name's Tom Bradley. It's great to have you here again. We constantly look at uh, various issues in the political arena, in the public domain, as being somewhat trivial or uh, sexed up or dealt with uh, inappropriately. And one of the problems we do have is we don't really understand how much thought goes on behind the scenes when announcements are made, when things happen, when things go wrong, and you know, how the media cuts and slices and dices what, what occurs. There's also issues about the way in which politicians may or may not be advised uh, properly in dealing with particular uh, policy items as well as dealing with crises. Now, someone who's had a bit of experience in dealing with a sound policy analysis, as well as dealing with crisis management, is Darren Barnett. He's been in journalism, he's been in policy advice, and he's helped various people uh, who were candidates or sitting members work through uh, various issues. Darren, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Tommy. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Uh, absolute pleasure. Now, it, it, there will be people who don't know who you are. Obviously, those who watch Sky News and have seen you in practice over the years, know where you come from. What's the you know, post-it note version of your career? So I am a Melbourneian by birth, and I was there for probably the first 30 years or so of life. I went to university in Melbourne. Uh, while I was at University of Melbourne, uh, I had a part-time job at the ABC radio building in Melbourne. And during those first few years of university, my interest shifted towards media and journalism rather than the Bachelor of Chemical Engineering that I was studying. So I went and studied journalism elsewhere at La Trobe University and used the experience that I had from the ABC to launch my journalism career. I ended up at AAP and I worked in Melbourne, Sydney, then Canberra and then shifted over to government. I did a small stretch New South Wales government but the first job that sort of people I think would know me I guess was I was Tanya Plibersek's press secretary for the first term of the Rudd-Gillard government. Then I transferred to Julia Gillard's office and was press secretary while JG was PM. Then after 2013, I started my own consultancy that took me to various places around the country, did the Braddon by-election for Labor, and after getting back from there, as a result actually of living in the seat of Wentworth, and my wife is a GP, I ended up running the campaign for Karen Phelps in Wentworth, the by-election, stuck around and did the general election, but my company also did the campaign for Zali Stegall in Warringah. So my background is journalism, but largely wire journalism, which is quite anonymous. Then as a staffer for ministers, the PM and independent candidates, but myself probably I'm not very well known, but some of the people that I've worked for have had some very good wins, some crushing losses, but you learn as you go and the political dynamic is always changing. 
that's one of the things that uh, I did want to talk to you about today because one of the one of the issues that I think is fascinating is what happens you know inside a black inside the black box it doesn't matter what the political party is there's a there's a mixture of judgments that need to be made when issues come up and when issues are being tackled um what in your view ends up constituting sound pol- sound political analysis or sound political advice? What are the components of, of a sound piece of analysis given to a, a senior politician? I'll give a, a fairly flippant answer first and then a more detailed one, but I wrote a column many years ago about Kenny Rogers' song The Gambler and... Really, you can summarise political advice to you got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away, know when to run. And there's all it's as good a summary of politics as I've seen. You count your money, don't count your money when you're sitting at the table. So, look, it depends on the circumstance, it depends who you're working for. If you're working for the Prime Minister, then you'd like to try to find a minister who can answer. Negative press, uh, you may well wish to have the Prime Minister answer questions about a very positive announcement. Prime Ministers and leaders in general need to always demonstrate their values and their vision for the country. Certainly for a Labor Prime Minister, that needs to be a hopeful vision. I think Conservative leaders can rely a little bit more on reminding us of the better parts of years gone by. That's certainly Tony Abbott himself would say, that Conservatives pull the best of things from the past and try to make them relevant in the present, Um, whereas Labor, it's usually a change agenda that sees a Labor government elected to power, certainly at federal level. So you need to always be cognisant of the values that the person you are working for, that they have espoused in order to be elected, that uh, federal government is an interesting beast. You, I think as the PM, you're probably playing 30 chessboards at once at any given point in time, and a false move on any one of the boards may well land you in hot water. State government is a little bit more about service delivery, so the stories will often write themselves. It will be trains running late or breaking down, roads are congested, there are not enough police on the streets, uh, hospital services. There might be a build-up of ambulances who can't drop off patients. That state government is a rolling audit of service delivery. But Prime Minister, you're managing key relationships with domestic and international stakeholders, including presidents and prime ministers of other countries. And I'm sure that your listeners would be keeping well across ongoing events where we are positioned somewhere in an argument between China and the US and they're obviously, the US has been incredibly important for us strategically and will continue to be so, but our trade relationship with China, whether it be raw mineral exports, whether it be uh, international students, uh, that is one of our key trade 
trade relationships. So you're always trying to get the balance right and you need to send the right message in multiple directions. And that's why the messaging and the thought and the order of what you say as Prime Minister is so important. If we take what you've just said, I mean, what people hear is what has been thought about. Now, we can argue um, about whether or not a particular politician or a particular PM over two decades has handled everything perfectly in the public domain. But somewhere in the back room, uh, there will always be a, a kind of a SWOT analysis. What are the strengths and weaknesses of the situation? What are the opportunities that we've got? What are the threats that we've got in place? So how, yeah, when you're sitting in there as a uh, as a media advisor looking at all of the agendas, how much of that kind of analysis do you need to put in before you start to have the conversation? Here's where we need to start positioning tone. Well... If you're going to do a press conference, then it's the press secretary's job to, and there's not a fixed number of topics, but it's certainly always going to be more than half a dozen and probably no more than a dozen of questions that are likely to come up and your idea, having consulted with relevant policy staff, of what the answer might be or should be. And, and you, know, you often see those uh, briefs out to MPs and ministers leaked to the press, uh, you know, the, the lines for the day. It's kind of that sort of approach. But with a PM, the Prime Minister reserves the right to use those lines or not use those lines as they see fit. So you always have to be mindful that you are providing advice and that people will be able to use that advice in their own way. But... The worst thing for a press secretary is if a question comes completely out of left field, you have not imagined that that question may come up and you therefore leave your boss like a deer in the headlights. And, you know, nine times out of ten, they're going to be fine and they'll have an answer. But as a sort of professional badge of honour, you like to be across what is likely to come. And that's where one of the sort of unfurnished sides of, the uh, journalism press secretary job comes across that if you're on good terms with people who are in the press gallery, usually do a couple of tours of the gallery each day, what are people writing, what are people looking at, and use that as part of your analysis of what the questions might be. And some questions, you know, let's be honest, in a, the most recent federal term for Labor there was always likely to be a question on boats, boat people, deaths at sea, uh, and that, if it was a potent enough individual story, would probably carry the day. And, you know, for us, we always thought if the story was about immigration and boats, it was not a day that we would win, whereas more traditional strong suits of labour, uh, if it was a story about health, if it was a story about education then that was more likely to be well-received by the public uh, as a, a positive government and labour story. So you're always trying to think of what the story of the day should be in your own mind, but you always have to be across the fact that it can be derailed by 
really just about anything. And it may be, you know, for Prime Minister Gillard, at one point it became, did someone throw a sandwich at your press conference today? And that became a rolling theme. And you've just got to try and stop momentum becoming about something trivial or something incredibly negative and try to find ways to intervene in the debate to be able to reset back to a more stable footing for you and your party and your boss. And there's an interesting issue that you, you that this brings me to segue into. Once you identify an issue, and I encountered this in, in the policy advisory roles I've held in professional associations, you identify that you don't you identify an issue that is significant. And that needs to be you know, a part of advocacy or a part of a, uh, let's say, external positioning. There's another question that comes into play, and that is the intensity to which, yeah, intensity with which you pursue that particular topic. Um, it's a bit like, you know, the sliders on a mixing desk in a radio studio. You know, how do you, and how do you, choose whether you park the slider at five when you go all the way up to ten? Well, look, I think you've just got to play by feel, really. You usually get a, a feel from the nature of the questions from journalists and the chatter before the press conference as to you know how hard they're prepared to go and whether there's a capacity to sort of launch a short, sharp, one-line response that will, you know, make someone else be cast in a slightly lesser light. But you've got to be careful with Prime Minister as a job, for example. You don't necessarily want to be the person who provides that sort of snide commentary. Some of the more successful or more long-term governments say, and really I think it's reasonable to say the Howard government's the gold standard in the last 20 years. No-one else has managed to you know, maintain that role as leader for anywhere near as long as uh, Mr Howard. But he had people such as Peter Reith early on, uh, Alexander Downer to a degree, definitely Peter Costello to do the kind of, uh, I don't know, the bodyguard work. They would be the ones who would give that snide line or the kind of, they'd push the debate and, almost bully the debate in a particular direction. And I'm not sure that anyone really since then has had a kind of a henchman or henchwoman who was able to consistently take the entire debate to a different place. And that was one of the great skills of the Howard government, whether it was using those sort of heavy hitters, and they were all household names by the end, or... Even something that I like to call a back pocket special, that you know, we had an incredibly successful cricket team at the time and John Howard might be in a little bit of trouble over an issue and suddenly it would be, oh, the Ashes should come home. Australia's just won the Ashes and we've won it three times in a row. What's that urn doing at Lords or at the, you know, the MCC? That It should be in Sydney. And there you go, it gallops another day to, you know, another area uh, of public debate. I think 
to some extent, the, the current government do it a little bit with um, terror raids and other sorts of national security. Sometimes the timing of public announcements, I will say that it is fortuitous for the government's agenda that things happen on a particular day and they may not have been having a wonderful fortnight or a wonderful couple of days. But that is something that's at your disposal when you're in the press office for a leader. If you are having a bad day or a bad week and you are able to change the front page, you're obliged to do so. It's actually, uh, uh, that's kind of an interesting um, interesting issue you raise in terms of the cohort that a leader has, because when you start to talk about the Howard government and you've identified the ones I would have picked, having observed the, you know, the Howard government over the 90s uh, fairly closely and the early 2000s, um, and even with the Hawke government back in the 80s, you still had you know, various players who were capable of doing that work. But there's something else that's come into play, isn't there? Uh, the 24-7 media cycle... Um, has intensified. Uh, you've got networks that, like Sky that you know, bring on the near-obscure backbenchers that then become stars because they have an argument on a panel with somebody from the op their opposing side. So some of that capacity you're talking about, you know, having you know, the PM plus five or six people around him that are capable of uh, doing the, the the muscle work, you know, the, the political bounces, if you like, some of that gets watered down because you've got people that sit on the back bench that are then let loose. That's true. And there's a couple of things I would say on that sort of what was a kind of multi-pronged question. I think the role of Sky and to some extent, you know, ABC24 during sitting weeks it's virtually a training ground for young MPs, probably mostly with ministerial ambitions or front bench ambitions, to hone their skills and learn to deal with the pressure of live questions when you only get one take, that you also have to deal with a political opponent, you're not quite sure what they're going to say, and you need to be able to respond to that in real time. So it's a very, very good training ground for starting out MPs uh, and, you know, some of the probably non-cabinet-level ministers in your team. But to go back to the bit about the 24-7 news cycle, look, I was a journalist in Canberra in 2004, including the 2004 election. And to give an idea of a news day, on a Sunday morning, three of the four networks had a TV program on. There was Meet the Press, the Oaks interview on Nine and Insiders. And across those three programs, they would get the grabs they needed for 6pm packages. So it was not unusual that there would not be a major press conference of note um, given by a senior minister that day. And half the time it would be one of them, the minister would be on a program off the back of a front-page story, they dropped to the Sunday Telly or the Sun Herald. So it was relatively quiet, and Saturdays were a bit of a ghost town because Sunday newspapers have their own staff, and Saturday afternoon in the press gallery was very, very quiet because radios had live sport, 
uh, a lot of the TV's the same. So you'd have the TV journos and a producer and a cameraman or camera person, uh, and you'd have a couple of prints for the Sundays and the wire journos, and that was it. Uh, the other thing, say, Lightline used to be an agenda-setting program at that time where someone would go onto Lightline if they said something noteworthy, that would be the lead on radio bulletins at 6 o'clock the next morning, definitely the ABC and quite possibly, you know, 3AW. And at the time, it was not 2GB, it was 2UE, but it would be part of that sort of Macquarie stable. Now, Lightline isn't even on anymore because its material didn't make it through to the next morning, that everything needs the date stamp of that day and there's... You know, MPs are out and about for very early starts. They always went through doors at 7, 7.15, but there would be a slot on, you know, Sunrise or Today Show or Sky's breakfast program. ABC breakfast rates quite well now. But you know, people, networks will take grabs from there. That uh, There's obviously a lot of online content, a lot of blogs, and probably the biggest one really is Twitter, and I think in many ways Twitter was on the decline and a certain US president revitalised its uh, relevance. That if you wanted to think about a job that would be very, very difficult, it would be as a press secretary to Donald Trump because you just have no idea what he's going to come up with. You have no real idea. You're basically redundant as press secretary to Donald Trump, rather, because... Um, he doesn't need anybody. He just sits here and tweets all morning. He does, but he also look. And I'm, I'm, he's also not bound by truth, frankly. And that's not to suggest that all politicians historically told a hundred percent of the truth a hundred percent of the time. But I think Trump, what number one, his capacity to change the front page is actually quite remarkable. But it's also worth noting that. He doesn't feel bound by any type of convention or truth. He will just call it as he sees it. And really the difficulty would be if you were his press secretary facing the White House pack, trying to justify what he had tweeted that day would be incredible. And the daily briefings that used to be part and parcel of the uh, press corps in Washington, they don't happen anymore. And... Yeah, you saw the first fellow, Mr. Spicer, and then Scaramucci was there for a short amount of time. Um, I think Hope Hicks had a turn. There was another woman with a hyphenated surname whose name escapes me at the moment. But they had a hell of a time trying to justify what the president was doing and saying, and now they've dispensed with those briefings altogether. And I don't think that's great for democracy. I think answerability mm-hmm. is important, yeah. that... He may well, Trump may well hold some form of press conference in the Rose Garden or wherever he is, you know, probably more frequently than other presidents have done. But it's, yeah, we don't get the detailed answers and information out of the US press corps that I think historically we did. Uh, and that's a dangerous precedent for democracy, really. 
what you also said is there'll be people around the place that use them, what they see in the US as a cookie cutter. Um, as an example of what it is that they want, uh, that they can get away with if they play a similar kind of game, which is an important point you make. In terms of the domestic scene, Darren, and we're mindful of the time um, at the moment, we've had a week of Labor having to manage uh, a fairly interesting crisis. If you look at the political dynamic of this, it's happening to an opposition. It's happening to what you might call the B team at the moment. Um, <laughs> putting your advisor's hat on, how do you manage that kind of thing a year and a half out, just about from a federal election? This one's a little bit unusual in the sense that the people involved who, you know, the recordings are made of and about are not helpful to either the Victorian state leader or the ALP leader federally. The, the people involved are not allies of either of those two political figures. So in a sense, I don't think either Daniel Andrews or Anthony Albanese is concerned that these people are being kneecapped or forced to leave the party. That probably suits their political agenda long-term. I do not know who has set up the recordings and you know, leaked them out. No, I do not know. I'm not actively involved in Victorian politics in any real way, shape or form, to be honest, and I don't know who has orchestrated that. But I certainly think that given we've got COVID, we've got National Cabinet, we've got a whole bunch of things that are fairly unprecedented uh, as part of the, the national and state political discussion, this isn't a bad time to wear your dirty laundry. And it's still a long time until the next election, whether it be state or federal, and the people involved in the political relationships that they have, and I know, you know some of the main figures they cross the barrier, the old traditional barrier of left and right within Labor and trying to build a power base, that both of those leaders, Andrews and Albanese, they're certainly not sad to see these figures disappear. But in terms of management, you never want a sustained story of bad behaviour within your political party because some of the mud sticks. And, you know, there's been plenty of stories about sus. Street in New South Wales over the past few years. Now we've got these similar sorts of stories out of Victoria and it damages the brand. It damages brand labour. So you don't want it to go for too long. Uh, and It's a bit hard to control because it seems certainly the Australian I've been reading day by day have uh, copies of text that were sent by you know, various MPs and political figures that are pretty damning and they're damning in terms of content and they're damning in terms of language. And for a party like Labor that prides itself on having something close to 50-50 representation with women that has a number of MPs who are, you know, sort of culturally and linguistically diverse background, that having commentary about, you know, sexism and diversity in a pejorative way, is problematic for Labor. So 
I'm sure everyone would love to see this in labour, would love to see this ground to a halt. But my overarching view is that if it has to happen, this is actually not a bad time for that material to come out. Uh, yeah, I was going to, the next question was going to be timing. You know, if you cauterise the wound now, you've got space between now and the next federal election. Absolutely. Uh, and the power must... Yeah, that's right. And the power has to realign. So the numbers that sit with the people who are being discussed, and I'm just mindful for sort of potentially legal reasons, I guess. I just don't want to mention names because I don't pretend I've only read media reports on all of this. So, but their numbers will redivide and they'll drift back probably closer to their traditional left and right homes. And that probably builds the power of the current Premier and yeah, to some extent the current opposition leader, but we all know that the reason that Bill Shorten beat Anthony Albanese six or seven years ago was the numbers out of the left in Victoria voted for Shorten. And so there's kind of no love between Albanese and a majority of the Victorian left, really. So, And obviously the people were from the right, but they had joined up with the left in a peculiar kind of way. So, yeah, I don't think there's any tears shed by... Andrews or Albanese about any of these players and they'll just they have to get on with the job. The yeah. next big test is Eden Monero. I don't think these sorts of parlour games, I don't think, you know, Labor's behaviour in Spring Street will have a huge impact on Eden Monero at all. I don't think they would have any idea that most people in Eden Monero would never have heard of the protagonists. Um, yeah. I think it's far more likely that uh, it's a bit like the GFC. I think it's really hard for the government. I think they've done a good job uh, in the same way that I thought the Rudd government did a good job during the GFC, that if the crisis doesn't hit as acutely as people thought, then a suggestion comes that maybe the government overcooked the goose in preparing for the onset. And I think the GFC, a lot of people thought, you know, maybe Kevin Rudd spent too much money, got rid of Costello's surpluses, uh, and we avoided the crisis, so it was all quite wasteful. And I imagine there's a percentage of voters down in Eden Monero who were thinking, well, we haven't had a single live case of COVID in Eden Monero full stop, yet all of our businesses were shut down. Uh, this is off the back of some catastrophic bushfires over summer, we're already struggling and this just makes bad matters worse. Now, I don't think that's an overly fair assessment. I think the government did a good job of trying to cushion the impact of COVID, but equally I can understand why a small business owner in a small country town uh, on the Monero Plains might be feeling that life is very, very tough right about now. In the situation of a pandemic, Darren, you, you and I both know what the you know, statistic is. If you have zero cases, then there's no, then there's nothing that you can point to to say our action resulted in, you know, uh, anything other than saving lives. If you had, if you had an extraordinary number of cases of COVID in Australia and a greater number of fatalities, you know, people would say, well, why the hell didn't you do more? So zero in terms of caseload in a particular part of Australia would make people feel bad or at least hurt, but 
the point the point being the point you're making is it, the whole objective is to keep this thing to zero but given that you've kept it to as zero as much as you possibly can people some people will wonder whether it was all worth the effort yeah you're between a rock and a hard place and I know today just of all people my mum sent me an article but Florida today reported 3,207 additional coronavirus cases. Now, that's more than we have in the whole of Australia, I think. Well, certainly, you know, we had, the number of deaths in Australia is still sitting around that 100 mark. The, the way that COVID is impacting life overseas is truly extraordinary and heartbreaking. In the US, uh, you know, there are just so many cities and states that the numbers continue to rise. Brazil is in trouble. Italy had a heartbreaking run of deaths, particularly in the north. Uh, Britain was brought to a standstill. We are very, very fortunate, and I think it's you know, a couple of factors, being geographically so isolated, being an island nation, same for New Zealand. And, you know, we're kind of we're tucked away in the very quiet corner of the world and that's to our absolute advantage but COVID's real COVID's a big deal but as you say it's very hard if not much has happened here to convince the public particularly when the flip side of all of this when job seeker and job keeper inevitably are withdrawn that people have to start paying the full whack of their bills their power bills their phone bills uh, all the other things that are associated with everyday life. Will, yeah. their, will their job remain? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, what, you know, lots of people are working from home. Are you going to end up back in an office? Will all of the old industries survive? If they don't, what will they be replaced by? This will be a time of incredible flux for not just the national economy, but for the lifestyles of many, many, many hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in Australia. So the government will have a difficult time in the medium and long term justifying how do we pay for it all? Are we going to see a rise in the GST? Are we going to see a lowering in company tax rates similar to what has been done in the US? Admittedly, not by, not because of COVID, but as part of a broader agenda that Trump had, that we're going to see a little bit of pain taken on by everybody in order to pay for this shutdown that we've had. And I think there's going to be difficult political territory ahead for the government. It doesn't mean that if the, the opposition can automatically cash in on it either, mind you. It just I think there's difficult times ahead. And at the moment, there's a bit of calm before the storm because, quite rightly, the government's put a couple of additional intervention measures through JobKeeper and JobSeeker, and there are a few other programs out there. I think they're looking... There's an arts package that was mentioned. I think the, pre, the PM did a big hookup with a bunch of stakeholders yesterday, so that's probably imminent. But in the end, the sugar hit will disappear and it will be back to the real world and whatever that may look like. That's going to be difficult for everyone. Absolutely, and there are challenges that we'll see in the weeks and months ahead. Um, Darren, if people want to touch, uh, if people want to monitor your output in, in uh, on social media and have a look at what you what you're twittering on about, where do they go? Well, I 
do a couple of shows on Sky. I do Paul Murray Live. I often do the fill-in, and that's usually a Monday night now. Uh, I often do Kieran Gilbert's show on a Monday afternoon. Twitter, and I'll be brutally honest here, that Twitter, I took the view when I left political offices that the worst thing I could do, because the large reason I left is I've got a 10-year-old and a 7-year-old, that the, the reason I left was to spend time with my kids and it would be unforgivable to become addicted to a political commentary platform uh, when I'd left politics itself. So I try and keep away from Twitter, to be honest, uh, and I limit myself to those couple of speaking opportunities week in, week out. So I'm seen as the token lefty on Paul's show, but I'm frankly quite centrist and I'm not a pushover on law and order either. So I'm still a big believer in coming together with tripartite. I think unions have a role. I think government has a role in problem solving. But equally, I think the old days of closed shops and I think we're going to see a whole new type of unionism on the far side and it's already diminished in the last few decades. So progressive government, climate change, I think at the height of the bushfires was topic du jour and now it's all about COVID and the response to COVID. So progressive government has some quiet times ahead but difficult times ahead and it's important times ahead. So I'll poke my head up when I can but I think just those couple of TV appearances a week probably will cover things for now. (laughs) Okay, Darren, thank you for joining me today. It's been great to talk to you after... uh after uh, watching you so often on Sky News, and we've covered a, when you think about it, we've covered the universe in the space of almost 40 minutes. Um, look, I really appreciate it, Tommy. I really love your work, so thank you for having me on your podcast. Thank you for joining me. And for those listening, uh, feel free to you know send your comments through to my Twitter uh, page. My DMs are open, and I'll be putting up another pod- podcast reasonably soon. <laughs>